Hawaii is America. As American as anything could possibly be. Yet it also never shed what was there before and the layers and layers that have come since. It's a wonderful, tricky, conflicted, mutant hell broth in what, for lack of a better word, you'd have to call paradise. Welcome to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. I'm Josh Michaels. And today we have just a few minutes of banter for you, followed up by an amazing, exceptional interview with a groundbreaking leader uh, in Hawaii and uh, national politics, Kim Koko Uomoto. It's real. We're going to do it. Great interview. Uh, we talked about all sorts of stuff, uh, her run for lieutenant governor, uh, but more broadly, like what she sees as the issues facing Hawaii, how we need to have creative outside the box solutions to deal with them. Uh, basically, how do we start the revolution, but in like a really good positive way. So we think you'll like it. But in the meantime, let's talk about everything that's wrong in the world. So this is a tough week. Yep. Uh, Rest in peace to everybody. Everybody. Like literally everybody has killed themselves. Especially the goat, Anthony Bourdain. Very sad news. Came to Hawaii many times. Uh, Obviously, you know, the outpouring of grief, but also like love and appreciation of his work from his fans all around the world, especially seeing um, people from places that, you know, are not often thought of as hot tourist destinations. Uh, Palestine, Vietnam, Iran, Trinidad and Tobago, Mexico, uh, people from all over. Uh, it was really striking how everybody was talking about they appreciated the way he treated them as people and not as curiosities, not as something to be ogled or gawked at. Uh, and he did a lot for immigrants uh, and you know folks, laborers in the restaurant industry as well, shining a light on all sorts of stuff uh, that demonstrates ba- that he basically showed what real food journalism, you know, it's not just about what's on your plate. It's about, it goes so much deeper than that. Yeah, it's I mean, about the humanity behind it and, you know, everything, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. At one time in our national history, food was as good of an indicator of the temperature of culture as was politics. And he sort of was a reminder of that, uh, that time that truly does not exist any longer. No. Um, also very sad, uh, similar, um, Kate Spade, you know, somebody else, just like Anthony Bourdain, who appeared uh, on top of the world, on top of their profession, appeared to have it all, you know, uh, left behind a young child, significant other. Uh, And it just shows that, one, we have a big mental health crisis in this country, as as we know. Uh, It it affects... Which is being actively defunded by our federal government. And it affects all ages, all races, all people, all walks of life, rich or poor, um, nobody's immune. And if you think all it takes to, you know, put my issues behind me is to like keep succeeding, make more money, do this, do that. That shows, unfortunately, that's not how it works. I think it was Jim Carrey that said, I wish that everyone in the world could become rich and famous and realize it's not what they thought it would be. Yeah. But anyway, um, listeners treat yourself to your favorite Anthony Bourdain episode of wherever. Um, and tell, tell the people you love that you love them. And if anybody out there is struggling or needs a little bit of help, please reach out, reach out. It takes strength to reach out. Well, what about any brighter news? Brighter news. Um, the two biggest dictators in the entire world are meeting today. Donald Trump is going to get us kicked out of the G7. Let's be back to the G6. Or we'll just break off with Russia and start the G2. (laughs) 
uh, America's official foreign policy now is we're America bitches. Yeah. According to a senior Trump official. God help us. Somebody made the point like the reason Trump gets along so well with all these strong men, you know, that he, that he admires one he you know, is a dictator. Pers- right, personality types, but also two. The leaders in the G7 who are, you know, in the liberal democratic system in their countries, they can't offer him anything. The way, you know, Donald Trump is a man who responds viscerally to praise, reward, like tangible things, you know. He's definitely not a conventional politician. So all these noble aspirations we might have of like countries coming together for the world good. Literally, he doesn't care. It's, it's also, it's, it's just globalist cuck BS. I'm trying to clean my act a little bit. Um, okay, so let's talk about local news then. Uh, city Council has introduced a bill to heavily regulate Uber and Lyft to cap the amount they can raise their prices during peak hours and to also require their drivers to register. Um, Chair Ernie Martin, bro. Alumni of the were, show. You were sitting here and you told Excuse us. Excuse me, alumna of the show. You told us. Alumnus. Damn it. We already talked about this. <laughs> Sorry. Alumnus of the show, Ernie Martin. He told you know, he he told us he recognized like Uber and Lyft, ride sharing, alternative transportation. It was all super important and like part of what needs to be included in Honolulu going forward. And this build, you know, if you believe Uber's spokespeople, well, then again, they have their bottom line to think about. Sure. Rapacious capitalism. But um this may not be the best way forward for the average people in Hawaii and Honolulu who need to catch rides places and the people who need to make a little extra income to stay alive. Yeah, I think what's funny about it is the average person, like we have no way we have no way of analyzing whether what Uber is saying is valid. I mean, what their argument is essentially if you don't let us surge our pricing to what the algorithm says it needs to be surged to, then we can't use the expensive times to subsidize the cheap times. Yeah. So you don't get your, you know, we we took Uber last or we took Lyft, we never take Uber. We took Lyft last night to dinner and back and it was $7 each way and they're saying, "Well, that $7 ride will be a $16 ride if you don't let us surge our pricing, effectively making it as expensive as a cab." Uh, but on the flip side, I believe there's a lot of money that's been poured into a lot of people's, uh, war chests from local taxi companies here. Yeah. So it is a little suspicious. Listeners, go check, look at the city council, look who voted for this bill. Go check the campaign spending reports. See Charlie's taxi gave people money. Everybody gave people money. Like they're not, they don't necessarily surprise, surprise, have your best interest at heart. Yeah. True. Um, but yeah, check the, check the campaign spending report. And see how much it costs to get a yay vote at the Honolulu City Council. Uh, what else? Oh, other local news. A new challenger has entered the already way too crowded Congressional District 1 race. Who that? Uh, Ed Case, former congressman uh, who tried to primary Senator Daniel Akaka in 2006. And, and token white guy. According to some articles out there. We won't yeah. say any more about that right now. Uh, yeah, so he tried to primary Senator Akaka. This immediately led to the death of his political career in Hawaii. Uh, so basically, he was biding his time and waiting for Senator Kaka to die before getting back in the race. That's and my theory. Sort of cravenly, he got his wish. Yeah, so that's something to think about. Um, sports. Warriors. Warriors. Swept the Cavs. Three rings in four years. Dynasty, blah, 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 blah. Splash Brothers, blah, 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 they blah, are. blah. They're such... They are. I hate them so much. There's but no reason to hate them. There's, there is no need to be upset. There is... There's such a need to be upset. No, man. They're the best. 
you know, everybody acts like they just like started out awesome. Well, people like, don't like the. When they took Steph Curry. Do you like the? I'm sorry. Do you like the the Yankees and the Patriots and the Alabama Crimson Tide? I don't think it's the same though. It's absolutely no, the, it's same. Not the same. It's the same because they built that team around Steph Curry, and Steph Curry was nobody when he came out of college. You don't remember the Davidson? I remember the Davidson thing, but Adam Morrison. Whatever happened to Adam Morrison? You you gonna build a team around Jimmer Fredette? Get out of here with that, dude! Didn't like. What about uh? What about that guy for Syracuse a couple of years look ago? Look at the the Storm and Mormon Jimmer. For, he got to, who did he get to? He got taken ahead of Clay Thompson, I think. He got taken. Yeah, he's barely scratching the D League right now. S- scratching the D <laughs> League, um. No, but you know, it's you're all you're, you're making very valid points. But my response to that is haters gonna hate, and yes, we do. <laughs> I, I hate him, except for Steve Kerr. I like Steve Kerr. Good for him. Steve Kerr's great. Yeah. They're all great. I mean, the only pl- the only move that I think was very like, well, this is excessive, is when they picked up Kevin Durant, because at that point Steph Curry yeah. had blossomed into Steph Curry, but he's not. I mean, he's no LeBron James. He's I mean, he's not even. He's more clutch than Kevin Durant, but he's not a better scorer than Kevin Durant. I mean, you think Steph Curry is more clutch than Kevin Durant? Absolutely, hundred percent. Hmm. Kevin Durant never had the clutch gene. He did you watch game three of this finals when he knocked down the, he had the clutch 40 gene. footer? He has the clutch gene. He has the clutch shot. He, he may has not have the, the clutch, clutch gene whenever he's got the best team around him. But when yeah. he was in OKC, yeah. there were several series he could have closed out that he just couldn't he couldn't do it. Yeah. Steph Curry's never he's never had that problem, but he's had the problem where he'll just run cold for like two or three games. He also chews his mouth guard. It's very unprofessional. <laughs> okay, Laura Ingram. <laughs> Shut up and dribble. Um, so what do you think LeBron's going to go next year? Do you think he's going to stay in Cleveland? Or do you think he's on the road? You know, I don't really know where he's going to go. I think, though, that it's really good what he's doing. He's sort of subverting the entire system, which is inherently uh, stacked against the player and empowering himself by making all the other teams sort of come to him. Um, and I think it's a luxury that only he's going to have because he's the best player that's ever played the game. Yep. And it's single-handedly makes your team a championship contender. But uh, I think it probably makes him inherently unpredictable. I, I'd love to see him go to the Knicks if he's going to leave. I think it'd be cool to see the Knicks being good again. But I also kind of want him to stay in Cleveland because it just feels like... It feels right. Yeah. The, the Sixers would be super fun, I think. Super interesting. If you went to the Sixers, they'd be the, they'd be the Warriors of the East Coast. Yeah. You should go to the Warriors. <laughs> that would be just like... LeBron, tr- Durant, yeah, Steph Curry. Just like, oh, oh. Oh sure, when KD does it, it's fine. But oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know. But we'll we'll be sure to follow the LeBron sweepstakes, listeners. We'll keep you posted. Uh, in the meantime, mailbag question. One last thing we'd like to share before we get to our interview. We got a really interesting mailbag question. As you know, the World Cup kicks off in Moscow. Our, I think in Moscow, but anyway, in Russia. One on- day, one day. That was like 2008. That was wasn't like it? no. That was like the 2010. That was like the 2010 Winter Olympics, like in, in Vancouver. <laughs> Sometimes I lay under the moon and I thank God, God I'm breathing. breathing. So, <laughs> so our listeners wanted to know: What if we get sued by Modest Yahoo for singing that's, that? That's that's anti-Semitic. That you think he would sue us? Well, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're very. Litigious. He's not even Jewish anymore. Of course he is. No, dude, he like he like left it. I think. Didn't no, he, he left. He left like the the Hasidic like ultra orthodox branches in. But you don't. Just... Nah, that's the only real Jews. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Shit. Um. 
So people have been asking me, they know, Josh, you seem to like that whole soccer thing. Since the USA uh, bottomed out in spectacular fashion and didn't make it, who should I root for or who should I pay attention to this summer? And that's a fascinating question. Um, there's you a mean bunch- for the World Cup? For the World Cup. Not just, Not just in like, general. Nope. New country. I don't care about the USA anymore. <laughs> new country. Who dis? New- <laughs> um, so Ryan, just... Before I before I give my answer, do you is there anybody you're following in particular? Anybody you hope to see do well? England, England. Okay. Yeah, because uh, according to Twenty Three and Me, I am seventy five point five percent English and Irish. Dang. So you white as hell. I know, man. <laughs> I'm pulling for them. Also pulling for I think Iran because uh, or Egypt. I could pull Egypt? for Egypt, Egypt because according to Twenty Three and Me, I am North as Af- we talked about a little about, bit North African. Bit North yeah. African. So I think Egypt. Uh, Algeria would be a good one. Is Algeria in it this year? I don't know. I don't think they're in it this year. I don't know who's in it. When when the U.S. wasn't in it, I stopped paying attention. <laughs> well, listen. So that, like, my first suggestion is assuming you know if you're asking me this question and you don't already have your own uh, rooting interests, you know, for example, I'll be following Egypt because of Mohamed Salah. I'll be interested to see how they do. Um, and for example, you know, a ton of Liverpool players playing for England, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if you don't already have a team or a soccer team or a culture you're already interested in. One, I'd recommend you do what Ryan did, and either 23andMe or wherever you know your family came from, uh, look up who's in the tournament and find your ancestral homeland and cheer for them, because that's fun. That's super cool. Well, we'd all be cheering for Africa at that point. Well, yeah. So, But like Mozambique? <laughs> Are they in it? No. No. The African team. That's where my haplo group came from, was Mozambique, really? I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you're going to pick an African team. Egypt, probably. Egypt. It's got to be Egypt. Yeah. 100%. Um, the other one I recommend, if you want to root for a North American team, the plucky underdogs, uh, Costa Rica, sure, who are there in our place. Well, actually, Panama is there in our place. Costa Rica is actually just a really good team for my Conca hemisphere. Conca man. Yeah. And I hate to say it, um, but uh, I read a really strong case that we should all support Mexico. I'd, I mean, God. when when Mexico sends their team to the world cup they are sending their best they are sending they are much their better best. than our our best um gustavo ariano makes the case for el tri in espn the magazine mexico is by far the most popular soccer team in los estados unidos el tri get twice as many tv viewers at the U- as the us mnt and mexican first division matches whip mls games by nearly the same margin because it often sells out NFL stadiums, the Mexican team has been forced to play four times as many friendlies in El Norte in the past decade as in Mexico, 61 to 15. On the same day, Mar- oh, excuse me, on the same March day when El Tri played Croatia, another incredibly strong team with a lot of tradition, in front of a sold-out Cowboys stadium, the U.S. was lucky to get 10,000 in a stadium outside Raleigh against Paraguay. So, Mexico. Mexico. Uh, really, at the end of the day, though, we just—it's important that people watch because yeah. it's an incredible display of athleticism. The best players in the world. You want every sports time, diplomacy yeah. is a real thing, mm-hmm. and then also, you know, gives you a good excuse to get drunk at lunch or breakfast. That's true for this for these hours. Yeah. Since we're coming from Russia, you can get drunk at breakfast. Everybody get drunk at breakfast. Yeah. Um, my prediction right now, I think Germany is the favorite. I think. France, Spain, Brazil, Argentina. Argentina is challenging, but I think Argentina, um, they, their goalkeeper is out for the like their their number one goalkeeper is out. Um, it's going to come down to can Messi, basically LeBron James, 
his way to at least you know the knockout rounds in the final and drag them there, which he probably can. Probably can. But it's going to be a hell of a thing to watch, and we'll be checking in, providing you updates, and just enjoy it. Just enjoy it because it's once every four years. The greatest sporting event. It's on like Earth. you would say, all my life, yeah. I've been waiting for, I've been praying for, for the people to say that we won't never fight no more. There'll, there'll be, be no, no more, more war. wars, and our children will play soccer one, one day. day. <laughs> one day. One day. Blue Blue Hawaii. Hawaii. Yo, yo, Blue Hawaii Podcast. Yeah. We often hear Hawaii meaning white person in a negative connotation, but it's a perfectly good word. It means foreign introduced to foreign origin or foreign introduction. So in Hawaiian, anyone or anything that is not native to Hawaii is Haole. I'm Leilani Poli Ahu. Ahui Ho. Haole. Haole is a perfectly good word. Welcome back to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. We are coming to you from beautiful Aleva Heights in Upper Honolulu. It's Tuesday, June 5th, and our guest this afternoon is Kim Koko Iwamoto. She's an attorney, advocate, and activist running to be Hawaii's next lieutenant governor. She's previously served on the Hawaii State Board of Education and the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission and was named a champion of change by the Obama administration. God, I miss that guy. Kim Koko Iwamoto, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you for joining yeah, us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, so do you prefer Commissioner Iwamoto, uh, Chair Iwamoto's uh, title? Kim Koko. Kim Koko? Okay. Kim Koko. Kim Koko. Perfect. Okay. Somebody earlier asked me to ask you, do you like Kim or Kim Koko? Well, originally I would uh, introduce myself as Kim Iwamoto okay. and people would say, oh, hi, Kimmy. <laughs> Nice to meet you. <laughs> okay. They would put the I from my last name onto my first name, mm -hmm. and it is kind of grading yeah. for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I okay. kind of put the Coco in the middle. Okay. And now, and then it actually works because Kim Coco, it's easy to know which Kim you're talking about if you just say Kim Coco. There's only so many Cocos out there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think I'm one of the few who was born Kim Coco. That's true. Or yeah. Coco, right? I think a lot of people I know that are named Coco earned it as a nickname. Right. They yeah. earned it. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. I, I. Maybe she's born with it. <laughs> I was yeah. born. Yeah. That. No, it's uh, the only the only other famous Coco I could think of is Coco Chanel. Was that a nickname or is that her birth name? Oh, that was a nickname. She was named after her. She used to sing a song about a dog named Coco. Mm -hmm. And so they just referred to her as Coco because Putting that's her on the notice. song yeah. she knew. Well, when we were drafting your bio, uh, we couldn't help but admire your website. There's a lot of detail about your journey and your family's history. Um would you mind sharing just a little bit of your story with us? Sure. Um, so my the website you're referring to is kimcoco.com. That's exactly the okay, website. Great. Yeah. So. For anyone interested in learning more, that's k i m c o c o. Um, sure. So I was um, born on the island of Kauai. Uh, my mom uh, went into labor at a party at the Coco Palms Hotel. Oh my, wow! My father's uh, the my set of the movie Blue Hawaii. That's correct with Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. So there was a big party launching and expansion of her hotel, which was world famous at that time. And um, Mrs. Gus Lander, the the owner manager, flew two plane loads of Oahu based uh, tourism industry peeps over, and my mother insisted on being on that plane, even though she was eight months pregnant with me, and you know. In the in the sixties, she was wearing her stilettos, and I'm sure she had in her hand a, a cigarette in one hand and a martini glass in the other. <laughs> and I just crashed the party. <laughs> and the these next, were simpler times. Yeah, simpler times, yeah. <laughs> and so the next morning, um, I was born, and uh, Mrs. Gusslander asked my mother to name me after the hotel. So that's how I got the name. That's um, awesome. 
Again, I still have her, the card that she made that request in. And I still have the invitation um, that is to so the party. Cool. So my mother kept all that. Um, that yeah. is, if you have that, we would love to share a photo of it. Cause oh, that would really? be super cool. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. How and, many people know that? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Oh, and then, so, and th yeah. So is that the background you were thinking of? Or well, normally we go beyond birth. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. You, like, well, how long is this podcast? Why did you want to run for office? Okay. Oh. How did you develop God. your love wow, of public we're service? jumping really far ahead. <laughs> Okay, so uh, basically I was, you know, raised on Oahu, but mm -hmm. we had extended family on Kauai, so we'd be there almost every weekend. And back in the day when you worked in the travel industry, as my parents did, uh, you can travel, you can get on the airplane for free. So we'd go to Kauai every Friday and come back Monday mornings. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was an amazing time. Uh, but anyway, I grew up in um, Honolulu. I, um, I always wanted to be in the fashion industry. And so I taught myself how to sew when I was in elementary school. I started pattern making and producing fashion shows when I was in high school. And I went to St. Louis High That's School. Awesome. And uh, I went, uh, then eventually I got into the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. And uh, I was uh, graduated uh, from that school. And uh, eventually I was working in the job of my dreams in New York City in the fashion industry. What was that job? Um, it was just working for a small couture house. And, um, but, you know, unfortunately, one day my boss called me into her office and she says, you know, I got this weird phone call at home from one of our largest corporate clients and they, they're not comfortable working with you because you're trans. I'm like, what? That's, this is New York City. I thought this would be the safest place to be who I am and to be valued and appreciated. And I, um, so before you knew it, I was out of a job wow. and I sought the advice uh, uh, from a legal clinic, a free legal clinic in the community center near my home in New York City. And I found out that the, and this is the early 90s, I found out that the laws protected employers uh, so that they can continue to discriminate against me and others like me. And that's kind of when I made the determination to uh, switch careers and um, go to law school and understand the law and try to figure out how to change the law to be more inclusive of all of us. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a real game changer, a real aha moment for me. And where did you go to school? Law school? Yeah. Um, I went to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. You're a lobo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. actually, I, I visited, I got into Hastings in San Francisco as well, and I visited both campuses. And Hastings is in the tenderloin of New York, <laughs> of San Francisco, and it's yeah. like this kind of building, and it's very cold and sterile, and it felt very corporate feeling mm. whereas Albuquerque um, it was the least expensive law school in the nation oh, I believe so it attracted a lot of public interest a lot of people who wanted to learn law to go into public interest cool. uh, law and, and and service and so that's how I made my determination to go there and I'm glad I made that do you ever watch uh, Breaking Bad uh, yeah, I've seen a few episodes. Yeah, it's kind of depressing. How well does it? How well does it portray Albuquerque though? Well, you know, when I lived there, and I, you know, I, I met so many people that I love. But when I when I lived there, it felt like I was in a movie of the week. It felt a little bit surreal. So when Breaking Bad came out, I was like, oh, okay, that's how I see it too. <laughs> <laughs> a shout out to uh, Becca Sowen, friend of the show, who is a proud graduate of the University of New Mexico. Yay! So we have a lot of we have a lot of listeners on the mainland and some overseas too, who are not as familiar with you being a total badass and breaking boundaries and breaking barriers. Yeah. Can you and just talk a little bit about what it would mean, I think, for the transgender community to see a statewide official 
um out and proud and you know you, you already you know a lot of people say and i think this you're already like the highest ranking elected openly trans official in united states history which is already amazing um but can you just talk a little bit about that and sort of how that plays into your thoughts well actually to tell you that it doesn't really play i don't think about you know that aspect um and you know i just think about how i can serve hawaii and improve hawaii uh, you know, I think people will be, I, I'm sure there will be, be a, a part of our, the, my community who will feel um, affirmed. Mm -hmm. But I feel, I think what's more important in the broader community, I want to I want progressives to feel affirmed. I want people who are compassionate towards homeless people to feel affirmed. You know, I want people who are concerned about the the, dis, the disproportionate cost of living to the low wages in Hawaii to feel affirmed. I feel like there's much broader reach um, than, um, than just um, trans people feeling like they have a voice. I feel like there's so many more people who are going to have a voice when I'm elected. Yeah, that's, and, and that's, Josh and I kind of spoke about that question earlier, actually, yeah, because we, it's it's a hard question to ask because we because you have such an incredible record yeah. on its own. We don't want to, we don't want to essentialize you or yeah, put you in we the don't box want to tokenize like that. your candidacy, but it also is so monumental. Uh, even if you're not running technically as you know the transgender champion and that's your whole platform, it's like it is such a meaningful candidacy, and the fact that you've done so well so far is so inspiring, and so. Thanks for answering that question. Yeah, and sure. And but you know, I think also what you may be tapping into is in this idea of an underdog or somebody who isn't expected or isn't given permission to access certain space or places of decision making um, and claiming that space. And I think you know, it's interesting with the whole Trump era yeah. and the pushback and the resistance. I feel like I've been doing that a lot of my life. You know, this kind of feeling of, well, what do you mean? I'm not supposed to be in the room. I'm not supposed to be here. This whole context and and this resistance that's risen up because somebody's actually said that out loud and yeah. and create you know and's been so open about their their bigotry and their xenophobia. All of these issues are so out in the open now that it gives people it's a rallying call for for women for immigrants for everyone to take a stand and to stand up and collect do so collectively mm -hmm. agreed yeah. we all we all i guess we all see really what's at stake and the it's all it's every time he opens its mouth it's more clear than ever so you've run for office before successfully and unsuccessfully uh what have you learned along the way I just want to clarify that I felt that the Board of Education was the highest office um, because I feel like public education truly is the biggest game changer. So when you're advocating for students and for their access to opportunity to change the course of their life, um, that's for me was the highest office. And I would have, I would probably still be there today um, had my uh, election not been um, curtailed by the appointed board you know concept and then not being appointed to the board of ed um yeah that was a true high calling for me well let's let's pivot out of that then and let's talk about public education because yep. uh josh and i both went to private school uh so i'm from montgomery alabama originally which in a lot of ways is an odd corollary to honolulu uh, one of the biggest ways is that our public education system consistently fails our students. Uh, state legislators consistently underfund them, teachers are consistently overworked, and outcomes are consistently well below the expected uh, result. Uh, that said, in Hawaii, we have state legislators, um, and even, even I guess yourself, actually, like 
everyone who is in charge of the public education system didn't go to public school. Is what Actually, I did like. go to public school. Excuse and me. It, no, I no, didn't, no. didn't go to a public high school. Okay, right. Yeah. But my educational foundation was in public school. And in fact, most private school ours graduates... Were, I guess I'm going to I'm I'm jump in with Kim Coco here. Like, I did go to public school first. I did too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I went to public school up until the seventh grade. And that's really important yeah. because when we keep speaking about private school graduates and all that, uh, we're really making... We're really discounting and discrediting mm -hmm. all the amazing teachers who have instilled our educational foundation. So I went to Hokulani Ali'iolani um, elementary schools, and that's where I learned the basics. So, so for the people who would say the the, the comment about, I think because in Hawaii, uh, as I've learned in such a short time here, where you went to high school means a lot. Uh, in fact, Josh tells me all the time that when he uh, transferred back to UH, you know, I'm, college, I'm here too. I can tell the story myself. Well, please tell the story. <laughs> So I so I got a so I um, uh, went to public school, then went to a Catholic middle school, then got a scholarship to go to Yolani for high school. Um, went away to the mainland for undergrad, didn't like it, came back to UH, and I had this conversation at UH more times than I can remember. Josh, where are you from? Here. Where you went high school? Yolani. Oh, <laughs> like. It, it, it means a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it determines, I mean, if everybody knows sort of the the implicit hierarchy of the private schools here. And so I, what yeah. I'm and like, that's why that guy talks like a 95 year old man from the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what is it that, how do we instill trust in our public high school teachers or students or uh, that that what they're going to get in terms of quality right. is going to be as good as these other places which consistently have right. if nothing else the PR yeah. angle to right say, I like, just want to also be clear that education is a service right and so it's a service that our state should be providing and we can't provide a great service if we're not paying for it so similarly to Alabama um, where they where you feel they underfund education and then you see the results that's happening here and I think Alabama is a is a red state you think <laughs> just, correctly. A, just a little bit but, you know and I think that's really important and that's one of the reasons why I'm running because yeah. we know that Hawaii is considered a very blue state right mm -hmm. we have no Republican in our state sen Senate um, however when you look at the way we fund social programs we look ex much more similarly to blue state to red states mm -hmm. um, that don't value public education um, and we've known for a long time that there's gonna be a teacher shortage we've been dealing with it for a long time and yet we we have dragged our feet around paying them a professional competitive salary. Mm -hmm. We There are schools on the west coast of Oahu, um, high schools that have um, teachers who are um, teaching science and math. I should say, put it this way, one out of every two high school students in, um, in Wainai or Nanakuli um, are taking math or science from a teacher who is not qualified to teach math or science. And that's not a judgment. That's an official status yeah. where they, they don't never, have the credential, right? They don't have the credentials. They don't have the subject matter or the pedagogy to be teaching. And probably they don't even have the desire or like, you know, so could you imagine learning math or science from a teacher who basically might hate 
math or science. I, I did I, that uh, myself in ninth right, grade. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there's, um, there's that, th and then we turn around and we blame the students like, yeah. Oh, they're not underperforming. Yeah. On, it must be something with their economic status or, you know, we make all of these kinds of things of, of blaming, but really we should be blaming the legislature who's under funding who refuses to raise sufficient taxes to pay teachers a livable way at a livable salary. Um, I think on your earlier podcast, you had uh, somebody talking about the teacher striking in Oklahoma. That's Christian oh, yeah. Mitchell, Christian episode Mitchell. 12. Right. Yeah. So, wow, you remember the episode number. We do this so, for a simulator. You know, and it's interesting because I kind of, I think the rate that they were striking, they were getting paid 35000 uh, a year beginning of salary. And they're striking because yeah. that's so offensive. Yeah. Well, the beginning salary here has been 40000 and our and cost our, of living is seven times yes, as high as Oklahoma. I actually, yeah, I oh. went online today looking at Oklahoma City at Craigslist for an apartment, and it's like five hundred dollars. Oh, it's yeah. ridiculous yeah. for a it's one bedroom cheap. in in their most urbanized. I mean, so and yet we have not been protesting. Our unions have okay. not been crying out about that issue, and there are other people who work in the schools who are underpaid. I, when I was on the board of education, I asked the super, then superintendent Hamamoto. I said, "Do we have state employees who are working full time, who are working in our schools, whose children qualify for free and reduced lunch?" And she said, "Absolutely." Ugh. I'm like, "That is horrible. That these are state workers working full time jobs, and we are keeping them in poverty." Like we know that. Well, and I also think too, if we had a public education system that was set up to make kids so successful and and had that sort of symbiotic effect of we pay teachers well, they teach the kids better, or you get better talent, one of the two, uh, you would be able to save money as the average taxpayer here by not having to send your kid to private schools. You'd be able to, you know, how much does it cost to go to Punahou a year? And obviously there's places like that where there's, if we're being quite honest, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, status associated right. with that, with that diploma, uh, more than education in my opinion. Um, although the education is also stellar, but I mean, you'd save, you could save tens of thousands of dollars if you had right. a few kids by not having to put your kids into private school. And if everybody did that and funneled it back in the public education system, we'd probably have enough money to fund things the way right. that we want to fund them. There's a professor at the University of Hawaii. I think her name is uh, Hazel Bay, who did a... That was our contracts teacher. Okay, Shout then. out Hazel Bay. Yes. So I, I believe it was her who did a, a, a book called Going Against the Grain or Against the Grain about... And she studied the 30-year anecdotal study on families who could have afforded uh, to send their kids to private school. All of their peers, all of their colleagues, professional colleagues are sending their kids to private schools. Yeah. Um, but they chose to send their kids to public school. Their kids ended up at the same kind of colleges and the same kind of careers earning the similar amounts mm -hmm. of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, so truly, I mean, I, 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 what does that say about this whole dichotomy between private school and public school? And does it say more about the families, the parents, the exposure, the support they're getting? Because truthfully, if we're making parents work two or three jobs, time away from their kids, all of that learning that happens and bonding and yeah. emotional development, um, I think that's, you know, the problem. I, that's a huge problem we're too concerned about making sure your college resume looks good as opposed to like what are you learning life skills for the future foundations for the future how to be a good community member good steward of your values etc um so in addition to paying teachers more which i'm totally on board with i remember uh when they struck in 98 i remember being on the picket eight years old being on the picket line with my mom um, Thank you. but talk about um also 
the infrastructure as well. You know, Governor Ige has got his plan to add air conditioning to classrooms, mm-hmm. which especially on the west side is huge. Right. Um, what else needs to be done? When I was writing for Civil Beat, I was a, a paid columnist on the education beat. Um, I uncovered that there was $3.8 billion in uh, repair and maintenance backlog. That's wow. incredible. Uh, when I was on the board, the of money edu- had already been allocated, and just hadn't the work hadn't been done. No, the the money never was never allocated, and oftentimes it was never even well, requested. Three point eight billion dollars of just disrepair, basically. Of, yes, of oh. deferred maintenance, mm-hmm. and so that's a nice way you, of saying letting our kids <laughs> suffer. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and then when we it's when we see the the theater um, at uh, Farrington High School collapse, mm-hmm. yeah. like a week after the Supreme Court was sitting there in bang. You know, like, yeah. that's super crazy and scary that thank God no kids were hurt or no, no adults or faculty were hurt there. But, um, yeah, we do this deferred maintenance, which actually ultimately has a higher cost yeah. for anyone who owns any kind of property. The longer you defer maintenance, you're actually whittling down the, the value of the of the property. Um, so things like that, that's kind of the under investing. But that's also I would argue with um, the a deputy. Um, uh, and superintendent of um, facilities about you need to submit a budget request to the legislature that reflects the true needs. But what's happened over the years at the legislature, whenever any department goes in to say this is how much it really costs to deliver education or health care or social services, they get beaten down, right? So for years, we've seen the chairs of Senate Ways and Means or um, of the House Committees on Finance. We've seen them beat down department heads to say, well, if you, we give you that money, then if we give education that money, then we'll have to take it from the kapuna. Mm-hmm. We'll have to take it from mental health services. Yeah. They keep dividing and conquering. And then what happened when Rail came along? Yeah. Oh, poof, $9 yep. billion dollars out of thin what air. What happened when Howard Hughes wanted infrastructural upgrades for Kaka'ako? things got done hey those those fundraisers aren't going to attend themselves that's right that's right you know this is and this is why i'm running really to to we know that the corporations are spending millions to elevate their influence at the capital and who's looking out for the people yeah so that's my campaign is turned the lieutenant governor's office into an office of the people well you bring up an interesting point about corporations versus people which is you know a bit of a uh a, a dichotomy we've seen play out increasingly since you know maybe the 80s and it's only gotten worse and worse and worse and it's sort of at a boiling point in a lot of places um in hawaii specifically we see this in uh mega developments that don't really benefit the people so i I brought up kaka'ako earlier which is great and is very nice but uh you know if you go down to when it back when it used to be called ward uh and what is now kaka'ako there's you know 3.1 million dollar condos going up everywhere and no local people can afford them and they're all getting sold. They're getting sold to foreign investors and they keep getting permitted and they keep getting built. That's right. But we still have an incredible housing shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, as Lieutenant Governor, what would you do to help with that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, so, you know, the first thing that needs to happen, well, we, what we need to understand is that if you are in a developer who wants to build affordable, truly affordable housing, and let's say, let's keep it rentals, mm-hmm. um, you're competing against luxury developers for land labor materials. Mm-hmm. You're you're in the same marketplace. Um, so there's no way somebody who's trying to build affordable can keep their um, keep it affordable if they have to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing we need to do is have a moratorium on all building permitting for luxury developments, period. Just 
moratorium. I'm down with that. Just allow affordable uh, uh, developers. And it could be the same developer. A developer could say, you know what, I'm going to develop affordable right now. And actually what we should do is if somebody, we, they should get credits, like the electrical, the plumbing, the engineers, all of the, pe- all of the component pieces to building an affordable rental complex, all of those people involved in that get credit points and then they get priority status when they apply for luxury things like that well when they apply later on once we when once we construct all the needed Mm. affordable dwelling units then we open up luxury development again then they get first dibs when you say affordable housing you, you mentioned let's say rental and i think that's that's a fine place to start um do you have an idea uh, i mean do you think that idea would work if we went in terms of like outright fee simple ownership for private residences i mean i think the american dream and the hawaii dream i think is still to own your own thing at some point uh, right i think you know but tr- given our homelessness crisis right now and i think what we need to first do stop I, the triage, is, triage yeah i think we need to create uh dwellings to, for people who can only afford to rent right now I think yeah. that's the, the first, you know, I think you, you spoke, you've spoken about housing first. That's right. Um, until you have housing, <laughs> you can't do anything, do anything. Yeah. So we need to make sure, but there is another way because building isn't going to be the only solution mm-hmm. for the immediate. We need to actually have a moratorium on some of the short-term rentals uh, in certain areas. I think Todd Packaway was speaking at a Hawaii um, Venture Capital Association lunch and he mentioned, he's been, you know, he's the chief information officer mm-hmm. and he's been studying uh, numbers uh, and he cited um, 4,100 units were in, in past years were available on the North Shore to local families who couldn't afford to live in the urban core. Mm. So they would, you know, commute all the way um, from the North Shore and to work in the in the city. And um, and that was a few years ago. And then today there are 4,100 units on Airbnb and VRBO. So those units are no longer available for long-term leases to local families. Um, Annie Co from the University of Hawaii did a study. It showed that if we put back some of that um, housing into the rental market, it would bring down the price of, of housing, right? Yeah. Supply and demand. Mm-hmm. It would actually make it way more affordable for residents. Well, and and I think we've talked about this in, in past episodes, but I, I personally, I don't blame people for doing short-term rentals because we don't get paid very much here. It's expensive as crap to live here. And if you can figure out a way to gen up an extra two or 3,000 mm-hmm. bucks a month, I, I mean, I can't say that I wouldn't at least heavily consider it because, you know, I've got tens of thousands of dollars in law school debt. So right. I'm like, I don't blame people for doing it, but it seems in my mind that the state has, uh, as it has in other areas, as you talked about, it's it's deferred maintenance in a different sense. It's deferred maintenance of our public housing. Yeah. It's deferred maintenance of our affordable housing mm-hmm. stock. It's deferred maintenance of all these other things, which as you said, when you defer maintenance, the eventual collapse of the structure is often so much more uh, chaotic than it would have been uh, or catastrophic than it would have been had you just done the maintenance in the first place. Right. And it's also about capacity. Do we have, I mean, so these short-term rentals are being um, lived in or temporarily by tourists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, can our island state, yeah. um, you know, can it hold all of these tourists and still provide for local families? And the answer I think is no. I mean, I not think, right now. No, no, not right now. And, and there are ways to, 
to, um, you know, there are countries like Bhutan that regulate how much, how many tourists come in because Mm -hmm. they're concerned with the the gross national happiness of their residents. Which is quite high in Bhutan. (laughs) How how would you balance um, sort of trying to diversify away from tourism while growing the economy in other ways? How how can we do it in a way that... uh, When we're not biting the hand that feeds us? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things is I think you mentioned student debt. When students graduate from college with tremendous crippling debt, they are, it takes away their opportunity to take risk, to be mm-hmm. entrepreneurial. It's almost like you listened to our past episodes. Oh, really? Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I know that we've talked about this yeah. extensively. Yeah. We, might, we should probably rename this show. Uh, the Blue Josh, Hawaii. And, Josh and Ryan invite people to talk about affordable housing. <laughs> no, that's great. The Blue Hawaii podcast or how we deal with crippling student loans. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I, I, but that it's true. And so I don't know if I, so I'm not familiar with those podcasts. Um, so these thoughts are my own. Yeah, sure. Um, but the um, but so when students actually when they're sending, let's say, six hundred dollars to the financial institutions who hold <laughs> their debt more um a lot most of that is interest yeah very little of it is principal that's right when we're sending that out to the mainland or when the mainland's grabbing it out of our paychecks mm-hmm. um that's money that's not trickling through our economy so is there a way to actually and so that's all tax revenue that we're losing out on right yeah. so is there a way to upfront it by offering free education to reduce the student, the need for student loans to offer free college free graduate school um, so that that money is no longer leaving to pay for student um, debt interest but staying and trickling down like could that generate revenue so in one of the episodes when we talked about this we sort of did some back of the envelope type calculations and figured out that if Josh and I were not sending uh, money to the government every month, that much money, uh, it would pay for one job, a full-time job making $15 an hour. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's what the two of us equal one job lost in this economy right Mm -hmm. now. And if you think that, you know, millennials are, 30% 30% of Hawaii's population, right. mm-hmm. 300,000 people, that's 150,000 jobs if we were all sending back roughly the same amount that's of money, right. which obviously we're not. But even if it's 25,000 jobs, I mean, that'd be a huge boon for our for our local economy. Absolutely. So we talk about where are the jobs? Where are the jobs? They're, they're there. They're we're all sending, going to Wall Street. They're all going. Uh, we're <laughs> yeah. sending them to, you know, somewhere else. Or, you know, we have such a low unemployment rate, but it's because people are working three minimum wage jobs to stay afloat. Right. Um, so, so you want to talk about raising the minimum wage? Yes, well, actually. So we our were, friend Nate we, Hicks is going to yeah, be very happy about we this. Were, Episode we, 14. Okay. <laughs> we were going to ask you if you support a living wage, but as a dear friend of the show, Nate Hicks of Living Wage Hawaii reminds us, they keep a list of that sort of thing and you're on it. So we know you support what a living list? wage. Okay. <laughs> Livingwagehawaii.com. Actually, I have a move on petition circulating right now um, to incur- petition for a $22 an hour minimum wage. Um, I have the um, the HUD, you know, the area median income um, sure. chart in front of me for August. And uh, yeah, it's pretty, um, very low income is $40,000. That's very low income is $40,000. That's $20 that is, an hour. Which is um, oh, the yeah, average. 20, so, right. It's, yeah. So that's why I'm saying at least $22 yeah. an hour because right now at our going rate of 10.10, yeah. um, somebody needs to work two full-time jobs. Yeah. $40,000, $22 an hour, by the way, I mean, if you're doing the math at home, would put you just above very low income. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can't live alone if, at yeah. $22 an no, hour. 
which is almost, I mean, unless you live in New York, LA, Seattle, DC, that's kind of incomprehensible to most people on the mainland. I mean, $22 an hour is more than a lot of my friends make with college degrees in Alabama. You can buy a you can buy a three thousand square foot home Amazing. on twenty two dollars an hour. So right. how, so how does this all tie into each other? Um, so for example, <laughs> Ash, Ashley Loa, um, another friend of the show who works for a, a homelessness shelter nonprofit, um, she says she likes the idea. She likes your idea of twenty two dollars an hour minimum wage, but she has clients who make twenty five an hour and they still can't get their families out of the shelter. So how do we turn mm. that into housing and not to you know, not to say bootstraps, but like, how can we build better bootstraps? Hmm. So I'm trying to imagine making yeah. twenty five dollars an hour and not um, is yeah, that's really it's kind of tough. startling, right? Yeah, yeah. To think you can make fifty thousand dollars a year and not be able to afford rent. I mean, that's well. It's also you know, truthfully, I think there the, yeah, there's a, our bankruptcy laws have changed also, so we can't get away from if you had a medical crisis mm-hmm. and you have all this debt. Um, and you or you put something in an emergency happen and you don't because your whole social network it's they're all struggling mm-hmm. so no one can help each other out and you've had to put on credit cards you're paying all this interest they're garnishing you just can't shake things anymore when I was a managing attorney at volunteer legal services Hawaii we used to have a pro se bankruptcy clinic right and it was the laws were so different that families weren't being pulled down by creditors and today it's so different we have allowed once again corporations lobbyists financial you know lobbyists all of these you know um influencers to take over and create laws that make it harder for consumers and families so this isn't an accident you know this homelessness crisis isn't something you know it's interesting i always think about what if a hurricane came through hawaii and we, at a point where we had zero homelessness mm-hmm. and suddenly we found the homelessness rates that we have today wouldn't we say what are we going to do we need to take over all of these vrbo's all of these airbnbs by eminent domain put these families there's housing, put them in the housing. What we're seeing on the Big Island, I think even in Kauai, wasn't there a moratorium on short-term rentals? So the government did step in and did put a moratorium, um, but it shows that eminent, you can. The government can step in and um, put a moratorium on that if there was a crisis. But we're not. But what's happened is because it's been such a slow a trickle yeah. into. Oh, the that's state. just the way it is. That's just the way oh. it is. And but this isn't a. This wasn't a natural disaster. This was a man-made disaster over time and we've become numb to it well what is capitalism but a long-term man-made disaster (laughs) right no exactly and so i'm proud to say that i have the endorsement of the democratic socialists of honolulu yes very cool both members here oh okay so you're a certified therapeutic foster parent i have been yes tell us about that um when i uh so when I was working as um, with Volunteer Legal Services Hawaii, one of the programs was, um, it was called Project Visitation. It's a nonprofit organized um, service. And what we did was we would bring together foster kids who've been, foster siblings who've been separated into different foster homes. Um, and we would bring them together once a month to make sure they had visits. And some of the kids had not seen each other for like a year and finally they're wow. seeing each other. So we'd coordinate a visits, uh, chauffeur the kids to the visit and then just chaperone the kids as they were bonding. And so in, in being a volunteer for that program, I got to meet all, uh, these amazing foster kids and these amazing foster families. That's and awesome. I thought, you know what I would love to do this and so I I got licensed 
And um, I specifically wanted to help, um, you know, GLBT kids in foster care because I suspected that there were many in the foster care system. And I also suspected that a lot of them uh, were in foster homes that were not affirming of who they were. Mm. So I imagined these kids going out into the world during the day, schools, wherever, being bullied and harassed and coming home at night. And in fact, one of my kids was read scripture about how God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And she, uh, she's trans actually, and the foster parent shaved off all of her hair oh and threw away all of her girl, girl clothes. Uh, and then the social like, work, just like Jesus would have done, just like Jesus. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was horrible. So this was so I, my instincts were correct, and so she was immediately brought to to my home. So I was able to offer, you know, my my heart, open my heart and my home to to these kids. And a lot of them were previously homeless, sure, or left in our youth facility, our youth correctional facility, mm. because like one girl was because she was trans, and the parents didn't want to sign her, her out. Yeah. So she was supposed to only serve like three months in there and she was there for nine months. Oh, I think Hawaii has the highest uh, per capita rate of teen homelessness as mm. well in, in the entire country, which right. I mean, that kind of goes right to what you're saying too, where, you know, and it's for a bunch of different reasons, not all economics. Some are just stupid moral reasons. Yeah. Right. Who's... Or, Amoral, immoral reasons. Right. Yeah. Oh, um, would it be all right if we did some listener questions? Sure. All right. So, friend of the show, Ashley Loa, wants to know. She says, uh, Kim Coco owns affordable quality apartment rentals, um, and 50% of your apartments provide housing uh, for low income or previously homeless families. Can you tell us a little bit more about? how you got into that and what the mission behind it is. Right. So when I was foster parenting, I wanted to have um, uh, an income stream that was allowed me to have more flexibility. So I, um, I had, I sold um, an apartment in from my time in New York and I um, then flipped it into an, a, a rental here in Honolulu. And I, um, so I purchased a building in 2004. Uh, it's a small apartment building in the urban core. So it's near Alamona Shopping Center, near Walmart. And it was kind of like run down. I bought it from the family who owned it since the 1920s. So they really didn't want to fix it up or repair it. They just mm-hmm. wanted to keep their rents low, which is great. Um, but I was like, wow, I think I could make this into something attractive and affordable. So I proceeded to fix it up and I and I got to get dirty and get work on it with all the contractors and I was one holding the sheet the sheetrock on the ladder and they put all their little rivet things so yeah. no it was great I really liked to see how they were they were you know getting the work done and tearing down walls and stuff like that um, but uh, within a year of fixing it up I changed the landscaping I changed you know I fixed the building up and the insides I made it someplace that I would want to live and within a year I was approached by a realtor who said that um, he had a client who wanted to offer me basically 100% return on my investment like double the money I'm like what in one year that's crazy and I thought about it I'm like wait a minute if they have a mortgage that's double the size of my mortgage that means they're gonna have to charge double the rent to all of my tenants I'm like Mm. there's no way they're all gonna be able to afford that and um, so I said, you know what? This is the time. This is like, I'm going to have to be part of the solution or part of the problem, right? Part of the problem is that we treat real estate as if it's a commodity and it's just about making profits. And we don't think about the people who who live in Honolulu or live in Hawaii um, and think about how to make... So basically... I made the determination at that moment, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to invest in the community. 
Um, and I have to say that it's been, it's still been my, one of my strongest investments in terms of profitability. Um, and it's also has a social impact. So it's a win-win for me. And um, so anyway, so I decided and, and, and being a landlord, I would get calls from people saying, you know, what? I've been waiting for section, my section eight, I've been on the wait list for five years and I finally got it. Do you take section eight? I'm like, oh, I don't know um, what's involved. And so I research. And at the time, it would take like the inspection, all of these it's things. It's pretty onerous. It's pretty onerous. Yeah. And whereas I could rent a place in 24 hours. If yeah. something was open, I could rent it in 24 hours. So suddenly I would be delayed. But hearing their stories and hearing them talk about how they've been waiting and then now they have the Section 8 voucher for, and they were told you have three months to find a place and no one, because of the shortage of affordable, no and people just uh, wanting to discriminate against people with Section 8. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to eat it. I want to welcome Section 8. So that was great. And then I started working with uh, the Rent to Work program, a program of the county, about getting homeless families um, into units, getting them out of their cars or off the sidewalks and um, into um, more permanent permanent apartments. And so that's what I did. And so now 50% of my units are committed to either previously homeless or families who would be homeless but for their Section 8. And one of the families, um, I'll just describe how amazing this has been for for me as somebody who's doing this kind of experiment sure. uh, is that so he was living in his van with three kids for three years but he'd been working at the same job for seven years wow, so somehow wow. he is literally the working homeless that we hear about yeah. and so when I saw his resume I'm like oh my god you've been there for seven years of course you're like great uh, you're a great risk in that way um, so you know, I only had a one bedroom and I'm like, wait, your voucher says you can have a three bedroom. He's like, but do you have a three bedroom? I'm like, no. He's like, no one has a three bedroom available. I'll take your one bedroom because your one bedroom is way bigger than my van. I'm like, oh, good point. <laughs> good point. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's so, a tough call. That's, right. That's, that's real talk. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I thought in and actually it worked out because the the rent and so Basically, what happened was having stabilized housing, he was able to get a promotion and three raises. Wow. So within one year, he was able to, he's no longer, he was no longer eligible for any kind of subsidy. But because my rents are so low, he was, and he was only in a one bedroom, he was able to, he's still there. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And I did explain to him, I said, when you're ready, you know, I don't want to push you, but when you're ready to move on to a more traditional, cautious landlord, um, uh, know that I will give another homeless family an opportunity yeah. to so when you're ready but you know part of the problem is that we push people through too quickly and it's disruptive yeah. and all the gains they made are lost now how do we get more landlords to do what you do um well you have to have a soul first right oh my I, god because you know what one of the crazy things is i would get complaints from other buildings that you were not charging enough and it was bringing down their rents no oh. that they they're oh my god you have kids in your building i'm like wait a minute how come you don't have kids in your building you know i can't believe that no one with families are renting no they're discriminating yeah against absolutely them. You know, they're keeping them out yeah. they're like oh your kids are making too much noise oh no i hear singing coming out of your apartment <laughs> oh, god forbid a joyous environment i occurs. know i'm yeah. like what i yeah. said you yeah. know what so i grew up in Iki, and we rode our bikes in the street until late in the night we made noise you know we weren't a singing family so we didn't sing but <laughs> there are families who have homes and they 
sing. That's what they do. You work all day and you want to come home and you want to like sing, play your ukulele and sing. I'm like, they're not just doing anything that anybody else would do. I don't know why you're, so I would lecture them about that. But one of the things I realized is there are a lot of foundations who have large endowments and all of that money, right? Their mission is to help people in Hawaii. However, their endowments are all in money markets that are basically managed on the mainland and you know, benefiting corporations and they're not truly investing their their endowment capital. They could actually buy buildings like mine sure. and rent them to um to uh, section 8 families. So, you know, I'm challenging a lot of the nonprofits that that I not nonprofits but foundations that I I know about sure. to do that. Uh, another listener question is that, you know, the lieutenant governor position is often thought of as a springboard to higher office with duties only really consisting of showing up at ribbon cuttings and certifying name changes. Why are you running for lieutenant governorship? Right. Because I, I feel and I think a lot of people feel that it's been a position that's been underutilized. The lieutenant governor's office is exact same the size. The last guy Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the exact same size. So the lieutenant governor's office is the exact same size as the governor's office. It's just on the EVA uh, wing of that square building. And um, they have a staff. There's an incredible opportunity to bring the people who've been working on the front lines of Hawaii's most pressing problems, whether it's bail reform, the environment, education, um, affordable housing, homelessness, all of these issues, to bring them into that office to lead the discussions, uh, like the concerns, let them identify the concerns, the obstacles, the solutions, what needs to happen, um, let them lead that process. Because right now, when they go door knocking at the legislature, you know, and they try to ask this legislature for this piece and mm -hmm. that one for that one, and they get nickel and dimed. Basically, they get their re the response they get is, oh, I don't know, maybe no can, or we need to approach it pragmatically, which means we're going to nickel we're and dime this issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to push off hope, um, push off actual change, and they might do some to, oh, let's create a task force, or, you know, we're going to study like, it. Somebody asked, so this question is probably a little, you know, on this note, uh, the lieutenant governor and the governor. You said they share the same size office. Uh, somebody asked us to ask you who you'd prefer to have win and work with. So we're not going to ask that, obviously. But uh, given what we've seen in the previous administration, this is probably a relevant question. What do you, uh, given what we've seen in the previous administration, this is probably a relevant question. Uh, what happens if you and the future governor butt heads? Um, I don't see that happening. <laughs> um, basically, I am I'm prepared to work with any governor or work around any governor, but ultimately I would work for the people of Hawaii. There is a reason why um, we vote for our lieutenant governor in Hawaii, and it's not a, a it's not a position that's um, appointed by the governor. It's so that we can keep an eye on, we can hold accountable. I mean, I really want to use it as an opportunity to make sure that the campaign promises that the gubernatorial candidates make, um, and they their you know they make these promises at the the Democratic Party convention, how they want to you know work with the party, and there's a lot of people in the in the in the in the trenches in the Democratic Party who've worked on platforms mm -hmm. and resolutions that have always been way more progressive than the Democratic elected officials have been. And to really hold our elected officials accountable to the party would be important. But also, at the minimum, hold hold our governor accountable to their own campaign 
uh, platforms and their own campaign promises. Um, so I want to be able to be that voice in 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 the behind the scenes to say, excuse me, Emperor, um, you're not wearing any clothes on this issue. <laughs> and I just want to point that out in a polite, respectful way. Um, but yeah, and you know what we've seen also is that when when people, I mean, especially like around Trump, right? No one challenges him from the inside, mm -hmm. and it, there's this complicit, complicit kind of acquiescence um, to what, and that's part of the dysfunction I feel like that's been throughout Hawaii government um, is this idea of politeness. Like you cannot don't make waves, don't make waves, don't rock the boat, go along, get along, all of that. It's so dysfunctional and it's why the status quo has brought us to this point where we have the highest rates of homelessness that, you know, the highest rates of families living paycheck to paycheck. All of these horrible statistics have been because we've been too polite. Um, so, you know, I would, you know, again, challenge I th whoever the governor is in the same way that I would want to be challenged. Like, you know, I asked, and I've said this to the people who've worked on my 2006 Board of Ed campaign, uh, 2010 Board of Ed campaign, you know, hold me accountable, like challenge me to be better, to do more. You know, you've, everyone has put so many hours and donated so much money to believe, believing what I'm saying, like hold me account, expect more from me. Like I don't like it when everyone's silent around me. I mm. want them to challenge me. I want them to see my greater potential when I cannot. And that's what I want to do for whoever's governor is say, I see your greater potential. You could do better. You can, you know, it could be a win-win-win for everyone, and there's a way to do that. Um, so that's what I want to do, and that's what I think separates me from a lot of the other candidates running for lieutenant governor. So you brought up Trump a moment ago. This is an actual listener question. Oh, is this the, from If Sarah? you could spend yeah. <laughs> Palhan a happy hour with any member of Trump's cabinet or staff, who would it be and why? And she says, I guess this can also include Trump and Pence and Pence's wife, too. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to include yeah. Pence's So life. I guess friend of the show, Sarah Turgeon, uh, she did phrase this as could, but we'll rephrase this as had, if you had to spend, you know. Mm, that's true. Yeah, it's, I, not, it's I, not optional. I'm assuming scenario. you're not going to happy hour with a member of the Trump cabinet of your own free will in this scenario. Right. No, I mean, you know, but at the same time, uh, I think it's always interesting to, you know, to engage with that kind of conversation, see what happens. Um See what kind of strange quote you can get. <laughs> strange <laughs> quote you might get out yeah. of uh, like Sarah Trump Sanders or... saying today that uh, the, basically saying that she's not an authority on the things that she said a year I'm ago, more, but she still is more honest than the media. Oh my, yeah. Oh right. my god. Yeah. yeah. Or you could take Melania and you know blink once if you need help. Blink twice. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So I yeah. There's um yeah. I don't I don't I think it would be an interesting opportunity. And also, who knows? They might be, I might be able to plant some seeds that make them think about things differently. Answered with a plum. What do you do for fun? Listeners oh. are dying to know. They want to know this of every politician. What do you do for fun? Right. I, I normally, when I'm not campaigning 24 7, I'm, I like to play tennis for exercise. Um, I have a mean slice. Okay. Yeah. I spin the ball in every direction. Okay. Uh, how can we use technology to improve Hawaii's future? Yeah, there's a lot of, and remember when the Omidyar Foundation uh, uh, committed all the millions of dollars to, and I don't know what happened because I don't think we upped our technology. I think they had some road bumps in getting it yeah. implemented. Road bumps in a state of Hawaii program? <laughs> so, you know, I, 
first of all, technology at the Capitol, number one thing is I would make sure that we can get uh, remote testimony satellite mm. uh, from satellite offices so that neighbor island um, neighbor island voters, residents can participate in the democratic process without paying you know, um, $150 for a round trip ticket, um, rent a car, maybe have to hire a babysitter to be away from your family and responsibilities for a whole day to go to a, a, a committee hearing and to find out that your the bill you wanted to testify has been um, deferred until I, another day. That's been brought up by neighbor island listeners several times actually and we didn't ask it now but that one it's funny because a lot of people that we know who are engaged legislatively on outer islands say it's a massive problem is that we can't it do is. remote testimony because they will go broke trying to come over here and that's testify right. but you know who won't you know who who gets to testify on those issues monsanto that's right yeah. and, and you know alexander and baldwin i mean yeah. they have access permanent access to the legislators and the decision makers and that's the most frustrating so when the the capital says that they can't find a way to offer uh, remote this kind of remote access that's really infuriating and it's just really a way to silence their voice yeah and it's in, it's intentional i mean that is a yeah all right last question so every guest we have uh we ask them for a restaurant recommendation and originally it was just the one and then we've sort of splintered off into a whole bunch of different categories so we could ask uh if you have a friend coming to hawaii for the first time and you want to show them like this restaurant is like the hawaii experience if it's date night if you're looking to impress somebody or if it's just like you need comfort food um so okay well i want to bid a, a we'll bid. very fond farewell to one of my favorite restaurants grandin oh it's french right, yeah. Yeah. kitchen and i just heard i had my 50th birthday party there and I just heard that they're they're closing, and it it and I think they're going to go into the end of June, right? Yeah, so it really that really breaks my heart. Um, yeah, they, I thought the food was excellent, the service and the ambiance, and you know Jenny and David were amazing. So I feel really bad about that. Um, so if anybody's hearing this podcast before they close, to you know go there, get your last. I'll admit I've in. never gone to Grandin. What? So. And I go to a lot of restaurants, so that will be next on my list. Yeah, the chicken mole is amazing, uh, but they also amazing. cook great fish. Um, but, you know, um, a restaurant that's in my neighborhood is um, Helena's. Oh, I, yep. I eat there. Well, I don't often eat there. I usually bring the food home yeah. uh, and I stretch it out. What do you get? <laughs> um, well, I love their pipicaula, their short ribs, um, their kalua pig. I, I try to stretch it out. And eventually, their, their kalua pig eventually ends up in my my chili mm. and that's a secret that's, that's a, a secret idea. sauce for great chili Ooh. if you put a pound of like um locally you know raised um uh, ground beef into the pot and then you put like a quarter pound of um of a uh, clove pig that's really it makes it Coco, you know, i like where your head's chili. at that sounds yeah really good all right and so uh, and then you've got a friend coming in from out of town. Where do you take them? Or mm. date night, I guess, because Grandin's closing. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. I don't eat out at fancy restaurants very often. Okay. Oh, do you cook? Um. Well, I don't. She well, cooks I chili. Should, I she cooks besides chili. Yeah. Well, no. I said fancy restaurants. Oh, okay. Okay. I usually to, the, the, sometimes the best yeah. rest, the best restaurants aren't fancy. Yeah. A lot of yeah. time. My favorite date night restaurant is Dagon Burmese food at the oh. corner of King okay. and uh, 
university. Okay, but growing up, I have to say my favorite was so you know my parents got a divorce when I was younger, and so every every Sunday night my father would take us out to dinner, and then we would rotate who gets to choose which um, which restaurant we go to. And it was my turn; I would always choose High Steakhouse. Hey, oh, nice. yeah. yeah, there you so go. So that was uh, that was my favorite then, and I think yeah, I mean it's, it's still classic. I think oh, it's yeah. still exactly as it was in the 80s or late 70s right he's still there singing Adi Kimura is still there singing about friends becoming lovers so if you if people hear this podcast and want to know how to get involved with your campaign how to donate how to support what does that look like well thank you it looks like first you start by going to kimcoco.com k-i-m-c-o-c-o.com and um, we have several um, buttons you can click on. Well, first of all, please register to vote um, and also register to vote absentee, you know. Um, and we have a button for that that takes you directly to the Office of Elections. So you can get that started. And we also have a button where you can sign up to volunteer. And we have a whole list of different volunteer activities you can, you can uh, sign up for. And um, obviously to donate. We are, uh, we did register to try to get public funding of our campaign, which meant we committed to not expend over a certain amount. Um, and so we have to raise, I think we have to raise 50000 in um, donations of $100 and less um, in order to get $50,000 from the, the fund that's currently available. And that's money that taxpayers have already put into. Yeah. So really, if you if you donate $100, you're really um, hopefully donating $200. Very cool. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? Any We want to give you the last word. Well, just thank you so much for keeping um, Hawaii's listeners and perhaps the world's listeners informed about what's going on in Hawaii and how we can make things better. So thank you so much. It has been a real pleasure to talk yeah. with you. Thank you so thank much. You. Kim, Kim Koko Iwamoto. Iwamoto. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii.